Hey, Chris, should we start plugging our December event? We definitely should, Ricky. Please, let's you do a you do a good clean plug of it. On December thirteenth at nine p.m., thirty years later is presenting the Last Boy Scout. Directed by Tony Scott, written by Shane Black, starring Bruce Willis and Damon Wayans, being presented in 35mm at Nighthawk Cinemas in Prospect Park. Afterwards, we're going to do a little uh, live 30 years later recording, so if you're in the audience, expect some crowd work, some audience banter. Probably not, though. We may ask if you have some questions. I'm assuming nobody will have any questions or want to step up, and both Chris and I will get far too uncomfortable to force the issue on anybody. But if you love balls-to-the-wall crazy action movies that barely make sense but have incredible one-liners and just insane set pieces, and you've never seen it, I highly recommend it, and I highly recommend going to see a Tony Scott movie on 35 millimeter. How can you deny those rain-soaked streets with the steam seeping up out of the sewers as every Tony Scott movie has, including this one? At Nighthawk on December 13th. Come, have a beer, hang out with us, watch the movie, hang out with us afterwards. Um, you don't, don't worry about being weird. We're already weird, and <laughs> we'll probably be too weird for you. We'll be so excited that oh you listen God. to this. You, we'll ask you questions about th- things that you probably don't remember from episodes because we're <laughs> okay. curious how much you actually listen. And then if it turns out you don't know them, we'll be disappointed. And, you know, and just, just, no. just, just come See, by. What I'm going to do is more go the other direction where I'm going to be so concerned about like somehow fucking up the fact that somebody has come to a live event that I'll, I'm going to seem aloof because I'm going to be scared to say anything. Where I'm gonna be like, people will be saying hi to me, and I'll just go like, "Hey," and then I'll like run into the corner and look at my phone. But it's because I'm terrified somehow I'm going to do something wrong, not because I don't want to talk to people. Which, to be clear, is what I would desperately like to do. Once again, December thirteenth, Nighthawk Cinemas in Prospect Park, nine p.m. The Last Boy Scout with a quick live recording of Thirty Years Later with me, Ricky Camilleri, and Chris Chafin. Come one, come all. Bring friends, bring family, fill the seats so we can do another one. I want to give a quick shout out to uh, one of our guests who came on before for our Van Damme episode, uh, Christina Cacioppa, uh, who put this all together and is a programmer at Nighthawk. She is the best. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Christina. with this fella. I was his lawyer. But you shacked him somehow, right? What was he in prison for? No, really. What, what did you do? Have you been following him? It's a small town. Every way you turn, I guess we're going to run into each other. <laughs> Dad, you should have just punched him out. Yeah, you know how to fight here. Do you do that for a living? This guy, uh, he threatened you? He's clever. So that the law can't touch him. You have a daughter around 16? 16? What? We'll be hearing from the ethics committee. We got this freaking psychopath in our faces. I mean, who knows what's true and what isn't? I'm just losing my mind here. I called the vet, and then he died. I told you not to let him out. How many episodes of The Simpsons are dedicated to lampooning this movie? Or is it only one, and that one episode happened to play in repeats all the time? Yeah, I think it's just the one, but it's amazing that there is a very popular cartoon satire of this movie that is perfect, you know? It's uh, perfect. But then it's also that that story, again, of how movies of this time were so ubiquitous, ubiquitous whether or not they were hard R. Like, this is a very dark movie. Yeah. So and The Simpsons was parodying it. I... I like uh, I, I hadn't seen this movie before, as as is often the case, but I had obviously seen that Simpsons episode a thousand times. So I felt reasonably certain I knew where things were going and how it would pan out. And then as I was watching the film, I was like, Jesus Christ. I was like, this is a movie that was like a big pop culture phenomenon. Like, it seems like a fucking horror show. Like, I mean, there we'll talk about it later, but there are scenes in the movie that are like so... Um, 
welcome to 30 Years Later. I am your host, Ricky Camilleri, and I'm joined right now by your other host, Chris Chiefman. Hey, Chris Chiefman. Hello. Chris Chiefman. Chris Chiefman. And now, on to 30 years ago, 1991, Martin Scorsese teamed up with Robert De Niro, Nick Nolte, Jessica Lang, a 16-year-old Juliet Lewis, Joe Don Baker, Robert Mitchum, Gregory Peck. Oh my God. Ileana Douglas, who I believe was Martin Scorsese's mistress at the time. No the way. Is, and and the movie is produced the by his wife at the time. Oh. And then we also have presidential candidate Fred Thompson. <laughs> Fred Thompson. Amazing. It's so sad that he ran for president as such a crazy Republican because I enjoy him in these 90s things. Like even I didn't particularly like him on Law and Order, but stuff like this I like. You know, it's it's a shame that it's been tainted forever. He's quite good as the uh, as the uh, you know the head honcho of a law office or great. or or an energy company of some kind. He's he's very good in these roles. He's got the perfect energy for that kind of thing and the perfect like physicality. And he just always seems like he's only kind of half listening to what anybody's saying to him, which is perfect and how many people in real life are all the time. So, Chris, you had said at the beginning of this that you had never seen this before. You had only known of it based off of the uh, Simpsons episode. We should say it is a remake of a film from... 1962. 1962, starring Robert Mitchum, who is in this. And uh, that movie is directed by Jay Lee Thompson, who is a fantastic director, directed Guns of Navarone, and then later in the 80s, went to canon with Charles Bronson and directed some of the sleaziest fucking movies of the 80s. Those are like Kinjite, Forbidden Subjects, um, 10 to Midnight, <clears throat> some really, really depraved, sleazy movies that he went went all out for. That's great. Um, so this Scorsese remake, Chris, having only seen the Simpsons episode, talk about how unprepared you were for how much this movie for lack of a better phrase, going to use a terrible phrase that I should probably be brought to the back of my house and executed summarily against the wall for using. But how surprised you were that this movie went there. Oh my God, Ricky. Well, first of all, I thought it was a whole mood and I was here for it. You know, I couldn't believe it went there. Um, (laughs) This movie is everything. uh, This Mm-hmm. Um, top no. 10 reasons why 1991's Cape Fear is everything that you must feel in your soul right Cape now. Cape Fear is giving me life and I'm here for it. <laughs> um, how unprepared was I, Ricky? I was extremely unprepared. I was talking about this a minute ago, right? But like, you know, so basically what I know about it from remembering ads and stuff from the time and just what you absorb ambiently as well as like the um, the Simpsons episode, right? Was I knew it's like Robert De Niro is a big bad stalker person and there's like a normal family and he's trying to hurt them, but it all works out in the end, basically. And that's basically the vibe I thought this movie would have, you know, and it's interesting because Harrison Ford initially was attached to this movie, although he wanted to play the Max Cady part and not the dad, which obviously is the part Harrison Ford would play. Like to the extent you feel like he must've said that just to not do the movie, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, it has a very like nineties Harrison Ford movie energy in, in a lot of ways because it's like a dad and a, a protecting his besieged family against some madman. And it's all these, just like we were talking about with, um, Ricochet, it's these kind of like depraved suburban fantasies about all your secrets coming out and, you know, being attacked and exposed for being inadequate, um, but it goes so much further than I fucking thought, Ricky. I mean, like there's a scene towards the beginning where he like bites off Ileana Douglas's face, you know? And like, like Silence of the Lamb style. Yeah, he like dislocates her shoulder, bites off a huge chunk of her cheek, and then you just cut to a silhouette of him just punching her in the face over and over again. And I was like, oh, holy shit. Because until that point, it is like tense, certainly, and you like no bad things are gonna happen. But that is that is, I think, the first time in the movie where it's like legitimately like jarring how disturbing it is what's happening and is that the scene is that before or after he kills the dog it is um that's actually a good question i don't remember i I think think they're around the same time but it's very close yeah yeah because i think he's he he's at home listening to jessica lang talk about the dog and then he gets a phone call 
and it's about Ileana Douglas in the hospital, I think. Oh, right. Maybe, right. yeah. It, they're very close. To, maybe he kills the dog first. But that's also done in this way where, like, you don't see the dead dog, and you certainly don't see Robert De Niro kill it. You just hear a story that the dog is dead. And you, as the viewer, know he did it, but, like, it's not at the same level of, like, visceralness that the Ileana Douglas scene is at. So the movie came out November 15th, 1991, uh, it was a budget of $35 million, which I'm sure adjusted for inflation now is probably like a $70 million budget, something like that, which is about right considering what the movie looks like. It looks like it looks incredible. Every shot is beautiful. Right, yeah. And in the box office, it made $180 million. So a far and away, a, a pretty big success for the time. Um, and so one of, this is Scorsese's movie right after uh, Goodfellas. And Steven Spielberg had been developing that, developing it at Amblin Entertainment and was going to direct it. But he gave it to Scorsese basically in exchange for Schindler's List because Scorsese was going to make Schindler's List. And then the business end of it is that Universal it was set up at Universal and Scorsese had made Last Temptation of Christ there so he, and apparently had a good experience. So he signed a two-picture deal with Universal, this being one of the movies and then the other movie being Casino. But this... Ha, apparently had Steven Spielberg all over it before Scorsese got involved. And I read somewhere that Scorsese read the script three times before deciding to do it, do it, hated it every, all three times. And then finally realized what he hated about it was that the family was happy, that they were a happy family, <laughs> which he, he's right because what's so tense about this movie and what gives the actors so much more to chew on is that, they're not a happy family. They don't get along well. They're in this terrible phase where they've had the husband and wife have these like uh, this this horrible history of infidelities yeah, and mistrust, and they, and they can't communicate. And then the daughter is also sixteen and going through puberty and lashing out all the time. So it, it just fuels the tension of of the movie and it's, also makes it a little bit different in the, for the time. It's so interesting to hear you say this, Ricky, because I read the Roger Ebert review for this movie and it's this, he talks about this directly. Um, so, right. It's a remake from, of a movie from the sixties and Sam Bowden is the name of the character. That is the, the dad. Okay. So Ebert writes, uh, in the original film, Sam Bowden was a good man trying to defend his family from a madman. In the Scorsese version, Bowden is flawed and guilty, and indeed everyone in this film is weak in one way or another, and there are no heroes. That's the Scorsese touch. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, it's so spot on. That's so spot on, you know? That's why he's That's why he's the fucking man. That's why he's the man. This is a movie he did not fall asleep during. Like, he was up and paying attention during... Yeah, this is him this is this is him knowing that uh the the American dream of the nuclear family is a lie and that we shouldn't base this kind of purity on this character. He's this the whole reason that Max Cady is after him is because he lied. Right, because he right? did something unethical, which is like, you know, it's good, it's good what he did in the grand scheme of things, but it's also unethical, you know. Yes. Um, and also, this is actually really interesting, Ricky. I mean, I know we're not really talking about the plot, but to this crucial plot point. So Max Cady, the ex-con, is after. Um, who is it that's the dad? Nick Nolte? Is that who it is? Nick Nolte. Yeah, yeah that's Nick, Nick Nolte. You don't know who Nick Nolte is? I know who Nick Nolte is. You host a movie podcast? You know who Nick Nolte is? We've talked about Nick Nolte. We've talked about Nick Nolte movies on this podcast. I said it right, didn't I? I mean, fucking back off. I got it right. <laughs> um, but he's, he's after Nick Nolte because... Um, Nick Nolte was his defender uh, years and years ago, his public defender, I guess. And uh, he ended up going to jail for 14 years for this brutal rape and assault. And uh, he, what we know first is that Nick Nolte had this report on the victim that he buried because he didn't think he, it should be introduced into evidence, even though it might've gotten uh, Robert De Niro off. It might've gotten him off because he just thought he was a scumbag and he thought he was guilty and he didn't want to give the evidence. But the really interesting thing about this to me is that, the and this is a crucial plot point of the movie and they it's like well we got a report on the victim who's the who's a woman obviously and they're like well what did it say it said she was promiscuous and we're just supposed to know as the audience what that means which i thought was both a really 90s thing in a bad way and in kind of a good way because it's got a very like clear-eyed view of what the justice system will do for a person who is raped and in general what the justice system can do 
Well, then also what happens to Ileana Douglas after she's assaulted by De Niro and Nolte tries to get her to go to the police and press charges. And she says no, because she works with all these lawyers, all these prosecutors and defense attorneys, and she knows what they'll do to her on the stand and what they'll do when they cross examine her. And she doesn't want to be a part of that. So, I mean, that that as well is kind of Scorsese is kind of always ahead of his time. And I think one of the reasons that he's ahead of his time and he's always wrongly criticized for for not having for 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 not giving good parts to the women in his movies and i think that's it's it, people only think that because the sort of the testosterone and the machismo and the toxic masculinity again to use a I mean, fucking annoying in this right? movie for sure like, yeah i think it i think it overshadows a lot of a lot of what the female characters are going through and the choices that they make but what you see is that he doesn't let any of them go. He actually asks, who is this person? What would they do? What would make this person interesting in this moment? How are they being affected by this? What's what the would right the relationship be in real life between this person and this other person? You know, like how much would they really see or interact with them or care about their feelings? You know, it's a real, this is a good movie to watch. I think for people who are unsure of whether or not Scorsese knows what the right thing is, or if he's glorifying violence, because I think this movie is extremely violent, deeply psychotic at times and depraved, but knows what's right and is presenting it to you in a way that is more interesting and harder to parse out than most movies normally would. But it's there. But I think, and also, I mean, it's a very violent movie, but the movie is like anti-violence, I think. I mean, it's, it's all the violence is pointless and it doesn't solve anything. And it's all the people who are being violent, like especially... Max Cady is kind of portrayed as this like force of nature or whatever, you know, but all the like regular people that try to solve their problems with violence, it's like laughable. And they're just these idiots who are trying to act tough and they have no idea what they're doing and they only get themselves hurt, you know, and that's yeah, they, all really... get, they all get fucking just <laughs> decimated by Katie. Yeah, exactly. Every single person. And there's a way to see that. That's like, Oh, he's like an unstoppable Michael Myers, but it's, it really feels more like it's arising from the flaws in the people that are coming after him. That's like those true. Fucking, like those fucking three guys that come after him. As soon as you see them, you're like, Oh, these guys aren't going to do shit against Max Katie. Like these guys are seem like fucking morons. And then maybe it's a filmmaking convention, but also you're like, why the fuck is Nick Nolte watching this happen? Like this would, this is like literally the dumbest thing you could possibly do. Now, why does he have to be there? I mean, I know, I know it's before camera phones, but couldn't somebody just tell him what happened afterwards? Counselor. Counselor. Counselor could you be out, here? Come out, come out wherever you are. I wonder if you're here. I love that moment because, you know, uh, to give some context, these three guys are hired to to put a beat on De Niro and he fights back and takes them all on. And then Nick Nolte happens to be watching and he turns to sort of try to find Nick Nolte, who he hears rustling behind a dumpster, but isn't sure, you know, if it's actually him and he starts calling for him. He doesn't actually go out to him, but he's pretty sure he's there. And one of the, you know, he's he's always got this character on, right? Where he's like, you know, presenting himself as this like man who became learned in prison and is, is kind of like a high, you know, attempting high society almost as a joke, but attempting it. But in that scene, he's going counselor. Could you be here? Come out, come out wherever you are. Ah, fuck it. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Like he just draw, like there's just this weird one second. And what's so good about that too, is I think like it shows that, Max Katie thinks maybe he's not there because he does drop the act for a second, you know, which is good because otherwise it's like, well, why doesn't he just go check and murder him? You know, but it's like, no, Max Katie is like, eh, fuck it. I don't know. There's nobody here. Fuck it. But also the idea that he is putting on an act. Right, 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 right. You're seeing that it's an act because you're seeing him drop it for maybe the only time in the movie, you know, except maybe right at the end where he's being just a complete animal. Yeah, so good. Um, we sh- so the the plot of the movie is we get twenty minutes into this podcast as is typical thirty years later fashion. Well, we kind of said the plot a minute ago, you know. Yeah, uh, Robert Dino plays Max Katie, who's a psychopath that's released from prison, and he's on a hell bent mission to uh, destroy the life of the defense attorney that was supposed to defend him, but buried evidence that the woman he sexually assaulted and, and beat mercilessly was promiscuous, which he thinks would have gotten him off. Or at the very least, it was unethical that the that Nick Nolte is the lawyer 20 years ago 
hid this evidence. So he goes on to summarily kind of frighten and harass and terrorize his family. The first thing that he does is um, beat and rape Nick Nolte's, not his mistress, but a woman that he has a flirtation with. having an emotional affair with. Yes, an emotional affair with, played by Ileana Douglas. And by the way, if I can just say, looks like a million dollars and is so compelling in this movie. Like, yes, I, I mean, you know. I, what a great person to work with. I would. <laughs> you should watch To Die For. She's wonderful. Oh, I've seen, I've seen her in To Die For. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then after that, he ends up just sort of consistently terrorizing the family uh, to the point where Nick Nolte hires a, a, a private detective. You look out the window, he's there. You go for ice cream, he's there. You know, like right. that kind of thing, you know. And uh, the private detective played by Joe Don Baker um, Who's so much fun to see. Uh, so much fun to see. Just playing like a huge doofus, basically. Yes. It is interesting uh, because his character, the way they make fun of it on The Simpsons, they just kind of do away with his plot line. But they just have a scene of him talking to Sideshow Bob going, quit it. Come on. Be your best friend. And that's it. Then he doesn't come back anymore. Which is kind of captures something of the essence of that character, you know? And uh, because also the cops won't do anything. The cops here represented by Robert Mitchum, who played the original Max Cady and the J. Lee Thompson. And then um, the uh, the detective hires these guys to beat him up. De Niro survives. He then hires a lawyer played by Gregory Peck in Gregory Peck's Which last is, on-screen role. It's so great the way they do it, too, because first you only are hearing Gregory Peck on the phone. And even as somebody who's seen him in a movies a million times, I didn't immediately pick that it was him. And then you cut and then the next scene there's fucking Gregory Peck on the screen. It's just an amazing reveal. It's handled. So it's, it's delivering. It's very fun, you know, delivering a hilarious Southern, uh, I might just be a simple small town lawyer, you know, like in the name of the good Lord, have it in your heart, judge. Oh, your honor. I thank you for your wise ruling. It's Gregory Peck from To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Yeah, basically. Yeah, but like so a that's cartoon, amazing. Like cartoon version but, of him. Yeah, but he's this like, like perverted version of him, which who is like defending the sex criminal for money. Like, it's great. He's yeah. like, I heard you were. The, I heard you were the best defense. I heard you're the best attorney there is. Was, I'm sorry, I've already received a call from Mr. Max Kitty. There must be a conflict of interest here so good it's so good um, and he's got max katie like cut with like crutches and in cast and his hair is gray for like the only time in the movie you know and nick nolte and his wife played by jessica ling have a daughter played by juliet lewis who is uh, 16 a 16 year old girl so is unhappy and um she and de niro, de niro starts uh calling her and pretends to be her drama teacher which leads to this incredible scene uh in the school in like a Hansel and Gretel type set that she thinks he's the drama teacher and uh or like maybe she thinks it maybe she doesn't you know she's intrigued she's intrigued what did you think of it's a scene that goes on for so long well it's and it's amazing. It's an incredible scene. What did you think of it? It's an incredible scene and like you say um one of the things just that's remarkable is so much of the movie has a lot of especially up to this point, a lot of crazy camera angles going on. These, the It's using the original score from 1962, the Bernard Herrmann score. And like, um, it's very loud and there's, you know, the camera's like spinning around and doing canted angles all the time. And then we get to this, this scene, this like seduction scene slash menacing scene. And it's movie, like three shots. The movie just stops. There's like no yeah. music. It's completely shot in like normal medium shot. Yeah. And there's just like shot reverse shot wide shot. And, that, and it goes on for a really, like, longer than any scene in the movie has gone on up to that point. And it's very interesting. And right from the beginning, it's like Juliette Lewis is walking down this kind of disused-looking hallway, and she goes through a door. And then at the bottom, you see, like, the witch's house from Hansel and Gretel. But, like, perfect, perfectly, perfectly rendered. And there sitting inside is Max Cady, like, with his, like, legs propped up or something. And you're like, this is so fucking bonkers, but it's also so great it's like so fun but then obviously the scene that happens is like it's very disturbing because max katie he is alluring he does seem intelligent he does seem like he cares about her he does and it is one of the really interesting things about this movie i think is um it shows what you can do in life if you're just comfortable lying to people 
Hmm. Like it's really, you can do a lot if you just, if you just have absolutely no problem with lying to people. Um, and this is one of those scenes where I'm, and I mean, obviously part of him is like, he is a pedophile or whatever. He loves young girls, but obviously his interest in her is not benign, you know? But I mean, he, I think in his mind, he's telling the truth. I there. think in his mind, I, he's telling the truth, but also I with think- the exception of the dog, but he never really says he didn't kill the dog. He says, why would I do that? Right. But I think also he want you know, it's, I mean, he ends up the movie, like tying her up to rape her. Right. I mean, yes. But like, are those things different in the mind of Max Katie? I, I don't know. I think you're right that I think he's telling the truth. And I think he is, he thinks he's telling the truth. I mean. Well, everything that he's saying in that scene is about his, her parents. Right. And he hates her parents. And he's, he's trying to drive a wedge between her and them. Right. Right. Specifically her dad. And so he's playing off of all of her, ang- all of her teen angst and all of her insecurities, but he's grooming He's yeah. grooming. It's, oh, it starts with him smoking a joint. And we've never seen him do drugs in the movie other than this. And it's it's just so that he can make her an accomplice yeah. in this moment, so right? They it's, can he, share something. And, and also we know as the audience that she's gotten arrested for having marijuana or she's gotten kicked out of school or something. And the one interesting thing is that we know as the audience that his, like Nick Nolte is like, well, who gives a shit? It's just some pot. Who cares? I smoke pot. And then, mm-hmm. but then in this scene, Robert De Niro is like, your parents, the hypocrisy, they're, they're coming down on you so hard about this. They're trying to destroy you. And it is kind of like dramatically ironic because we, as the audience know, like that isn't really how they felt, you know, they're coming down on you for your sins or for their sins. I'll cut that. (laughs) 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 Got it. Um, But it is, it's it's a really, it's a really disturbing scene. I think because I think it's disturbing because there is something genuinely magnetic about him, but you know at this point how evil he is because this is post the Ileana Douglas face biting off thing, you know. I think it's a genuinely disturbing scene because of Juliette Lewis's performance. Oh, she's so good in this scene, Ricky. She's nominated, so good. Nominated for an Academy Award, obviously for this scene alone. I mean, she's good in the rest of the movie, but this scene alone, she is so unbelievably good. The way her like her eyes are moving and she's like you know she's what she's doing with her hands and there's this whole thing where he sticks his thumb in her mouth and the the emotions that you see go through her mind during that scene are like i, I it's amazing it's amazing that that is acting do you know what i mean it looks so real the way that she goes from this is my drama teacher to wait i think this is that guy to did you kill my dog to yeah i do hate my parents and they're upsetting me oh wow this guy really likes me and is making a lot of sense. Oh, he just touched me in a way that makes me really uncomfortable and isn't right. And I'm scared. Yeah. But I think I, but I, but also I feel, I feel like someone connected to me. Like she does this up and down roller coaster ride of emotions where in one moment when she asks about the dog, she starts crying, but just a little bit. And then when he says no, the tears go away. Right. And she's she's like, willing to believe him, you know, And it's definitely she's having this thing where she is attracted to him and is compelled by him, but is also terrified of him and knows that he's like a danger to her, you know, Mm -hmm. but even that itself is attractive, you know? Well, at this point, she doesn't know exactly what this guy has done. Right. Like they have tried to keep her in the dark as the parents have tried to keep her in the dark as much as possible. But so all she knows is that mom and dad don't like him. Right. Well, she knows like well, she knows the thing about the dog, I guess. Like that's the one thing she knows, right? Um, but because and she said because what she says to him is like, "Are you the guy hanging around the house?" That's right. Yeah. Which is like, I mean, that sounds creepy, but it doesn't sound like the worst thing in the world, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that scene is is, and it just comes in the middle of this, like you said, like the whole movie is so highly stylized and insane, and the music is like is plain through every second of the movie and is extremely loud. And then all of a sudden everything stops and the movie knows exactly what that scene is. It's right in the middle of it. And it's like, okay, this is the heart of the movie. Right. Yeah. This has got to be the scene that like drives everything afterwards. Well, um, why do you hate my father? I don't hate him at all. Oh no. I pray for him. I'm here to help him. I mean, we all make mistakes, Danielle. You and I have, but at least we try to admit it, don't we? 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. But your daddy, he don't. Every man carries a circle of hell around his head like a halo. Your daddy, too. Every man, every man has to go through hell to reach his paradise. You know what paradise is? No. Salvation. Because your daddy's not happy. Your mommy's not happy. And you know what? You're not happy. Are you? No, I'm not. You thought about me last night, didn't you? Um, yes, I did. I know. You know, I, I think I might have found a companion. A companion for that long walk to the lab. Do you mind if I put my arm around you? Okay. No, I don't mind. Okay. So after he he sees uh he sees Juliet Lewis and Nolte finds out about it. that's when he hires the goons. Gregory Peck shows up and represents him and gets a restraining order put against Nick Nolte. It's one of those classic like 80s, 90s stories of like, why is the law on this guy's side? Ah, The criminals (laughs) run the courts. I I will say one thing that I really like about that movie is that Nick Nolte's character in the movie is supposed to be a lawyer. And there's at least three scenes where someone being like, come on, you know this, you're a lawyer. (laughs) Right, like there's multiple scenes where people have to explain the law to Nick. I mean, Nolte. there's a scene where Nick Nolte finds a dead body, picks up the gun that killed them, and then slips in the blood and is covered in blood everywhere, and but picks how much up did the you, piano wire how, that killed somebody. Do you know what I mean? And you're like, but how much did you love that moment? Oh my god, it was fantastic. It's fantastic. Right, like who cares? Who cares about logic if you no, can I do know. that? I know. Like just to have it's like it's so over the top at that point, you know. Yeah. He's rolling around in blood and he's going like <laughs> But everybody else's reactions are so believable. They're hor- they're like totally horrified by what he's doing and they're screaming and crying. And this is after uh what you're referring to the scene is where um Nick Nolte has a uh, uh, Joe Don Baker come and guard the house for a little while. And um, De Niro kills the housekeeper and then dresses as the housekeeper. With a, and then <laughs> it's so crazy. When, when Joe Don Baker isn't looking, he comes, he turns around and strangles him with wire until, yeah. and then, and then shoot has it. So he, he shoots himself in the head. Nolte grabs the gun and starts shooting. Then they freak out and they get in their car and they drive off to the ocean where they're going to, hide out on a houseboat for a little while but they're followed by katie in what again is a very now iconic simpsons moment which is uh sideshow bob hiding underneath the jeep and and driving along and homer's like hey there's a shortcut through this cactus patch (laughs) who wants to go and everyone goes yay and then there's one (laughs) no And then, of course, he gets out from under the car and steps on a thousand rakes. Like, that's like maybe the most iconic moment from The Simpsons. Apparently, De Niro had a stunt driver show him if this was a stunt person, show him if this was possible. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it. Mm, come on. Like, unless they were driving like five blocks. I mean, there's no fucking way. It was yeah. like hours that he was clinging yes, to the hours. bottom of a car and like they're like turning and getting on and off the highway and like none of the other drivers ever noticed anything and honked so at them or something. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, but it's insane, but this is what I think is great about the movie is it, it is able to operate both on the plane of like cartoon domestic, like terror movie, but also on like very real evil people terror, which I think is really interesting. Like, I mean, this, the, so we're up to the houseboat scene. They go out onto, not onto the ocean, but onto a river, which I was the whole time going like, this fucking looks like Florida. And I guess they filmed it like in Fort Lauderdale. But so they go out onto the river and there's a great scene where they, they hear some kind of noise and Juliet Lewis gets scared. And um, 
Oh, who plays the mom again? What's her name? Jessica, Jessica Lang. Lang. Jessica Lang says, honey, we're on the river. <laughs> Which is just like, I it's just such a great line because it's so like meaningless, but so freighted with meaning at the same time. You know, it's such a silly thing, especially in Jessica Lang's accent. But um, then there's this insane confrontation that is maybe like 20 minutes long and goes through multiple, like you think the monster has been killed and then the monster returns kind of, but like, the way that the violence happens in in that in the whole movie from that point on is so realistic and so disturbing and so devoid of like glitz like you just see robert de niro as like you know and like look this happens right like people get raped and murdered and it's just like you are in that moment are like god this is like maybe what it would actually be like to be like a kidnapped and murdered like it's so scary and there's this way that he has like a connection with them, but also he is going to kill them and they all know he's going to kill them. And like how the, the, the emotional level of that is so intense. I think what makes it the emotional level so intense also is that Scorsese deciding to make this family unhappy with each other right. and potentially dislike each other because there's this, this, they're not going to, but there is a sense that they could turn on each other at some right. point that they could not care if he kills Nick Nolte. Right, right. That Jessica Lange might not be full of shit when she's saying, I have a connection with you. Oh my God. That monologue where she says that and she's like crying and saying like, I've got such a connection with you. I, you know, please, whatever you're going to do to my daughter, just do it to me instead. I mean, that is the kind of thing that should be hokey in a, in a movie like this. And it's the kind of speech people give in movies like this all the time, but there's just something, it just seems real in this situation. I don't think it's something that... Uh, it's not as I guess what it would normally be is it wouldn't be a speech, right? It's brought to this place where like she has a moment to deliver a monologue, right? Versus I think in a in in most movies it would just be like take me, don't take right. her, and they, take me. You that know, is like, that, like Nick Nolte does say that in the movie where he goes like this is between us, leave them out of it. Like that's where right. most movies would leave it, but this movie gives this in, this monologue to Jessica Lange that is heart wrenching. You know. Next, since all this started, I've thought about you all the time. I've, I've tried to imagine what, what it must have been like for you all those years locked up in jail. I've tried to imagine you and even your crimes and how you must have felt in those moments that you did them. You see, I know about loss, Max. I know about losing time, even losing years. And I know it doesn't come here to jail, but I, I can understand. And I can share this with you because of that, whatever it is that you've got. Plan. I want you to do it just with me. You want to do the questions? Want to do the questions? Yeah, let's do okay. it, brother. So, Chris, you know, at the end of this podcast, uh, we ask three questions, three simple questions. Just, just three, three simple questions. Right. That we you don't hope, have time for three questions? What? We hope... Our guests and you have thought out more than me, who makes them up on the spot. So you first, Chris, what was your favorite part of the movie? Oh, well, okay. So I, I'm always, you know, torn between being flip and being sincere at this part of the movie um, or this part of the podcast. I mean, um, there's a couple of things I really liked. I mean, one of them is Scorsese's doing this interesting thing where he's, um, like I said before, he retained the Bernard Herrmann score. He also mostly entirely reused the Saul Bass opening credits to the movie, which is really interesting. And then he's kind of also giving it this kind of like Hitchcock layer with these crazy canted angles and this like uh, tension in a lot of the movie and these, you know, these music stings. Like I, I really enjoyed that. Um, and kind of, in kind of a brutal way, this isn't my favorite thing, but like, I loved that the ending of the movie goes to where it goes and goes as dark as it goes, which I mean, obviously movies still do that kind of thing. And in some ways are way darker than this movie, but like, you know, this is a big budget movie, a big pop culture phenomenon starring big movie stars, like from the director that had just made Goodfellas. So like, I don't think this kind of movie necessarily would go this brutal these days. I mean, look at fucking Nomadland. That's like a movie that's about like we're not we're not at whether like what we've grown out of or what's so nineties. No, about okay, it no, no, no. But I'm just saying that I I, I like that. I like that. Um, I like the brutal houseboat scene, but also like 
I just loved all of Robert De Niro's fucking crazy outfits in this movie. <laughs> like, I, every one of his fucking outfits is insane, and I loved all of them. Like, I loved even down to the detail of when he walks out of prison in 1991, and he's supposed to have been in prison for 14 years. He's wearing the craziest 70s outfit with, like, these kind of, like, hip-hugging bell bottoms and, like, one of those shirts that totally zips up the front and is, like, a felt like made out of felt or something and then he's wearing like crazy hawaiian shirts and like all sorts of he it seems to be a specific about him that he really cares how he looks and you do see him like coloring his hair during the movie and i thought all of that was really interesting and fun and weird i think my favorite part is at the end of the film when uh the houseboat is sinking and de niro is handcuffed to it and as it's sinking and he's speaking in tongues and I feel like another movie would feel the need to have to reference this man knows how to speak in tongues, but the only other time it's reference is when he says he's going to like fuck Jessica Lange so good. She'll be speaking in tongues. Um, but in this well, moment, he does say he says like, Oh, my grandparents used to handle snakes in church. Oh, okay. But so as he's going down and he's speaking in tongues, he's, he's yelling and speaking in tongues and he's looking at Nolte and Nolte's watching him from the shore. And then all of a sudden he his face gets to this point in the water where it's like oh the water's God. just below his nose and he just stops sinking and the movie cuts to him like just standing there just clearly not sinking anymore de niro standing on a piece of standing on something with water up at his face like that's what it is like he's in a tank and it's obvious and they cut to nolte and then they cut back to de niro, nolte de niro and it works somehow it's terrifying like i sat there being like this so obviously is fake but what does it matter it's beautiful there is something beautiful in that whole stretch of the movie the way that they mix locations and matte paintings and tanks and sets and it's very old hollywood and it just works it just works you know it's good like they crash the houseboat against the rocks and suddenly it's like the size of a a canoe or something like it's (laughs) really small but there's i don't i just don't know how he's doing it i don't know how he has like set up this space and this world where he can have all of these different different elements contrasting and juxtaposing and bumping up against each other yet feel cohesive at the same time and that was where it kind of climaxed for me was suddenly de niro was standing in water in the midst of sinking has stopped sinking is standing there and staring basically almost at the lens yeah and then he sinks again. Oh my God, yeah. And it's just so... And it's because it, another thing is you're really like watching him die is the other thing. And there's that, like that moment to me was kind of like, he is just paused in the second before he's about to die. And then you really watch him like disappear. And it it somehow really conveys to you like the enormity of someone fucking ceasing to exist. And even though it's the villain, it's like, really fucked up i mean and that is the whole point of the movie is like max katie is trying to show nick nolte that he's just as much of an animal as robert de niro is and he's no better than him and the climb you know the narrative climax the emotional climax of the movie is nick nolte like being willing to like crush robert de niro's head with a big rock because you know even though he's chained to a thing and even though he can't go anywhere it's just like he has gotten to the point where he's like there's i have to murder this person um, but then as he's about to bash his head in, he gets the boat gets carried which out. Which is so to, fucking stupid. That was such a fucking cop out. Like yeah, it, 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 it was, but it ends up working because, right, because as this soon as he happens, out, he starts yeah. speaking in tongues. Yeah. <laughs> which is so much better. <laughs> so much better. Um, Chris, um, when we started this podcast, you know, uh, last year and we called it 30 years later, we didn't realize in the moment that that meant we would only be talking <laughs> about movies from the fucking nineties. So we have to ask the question at the end of every one of these fucking conversations. What was the most nineties thing yeah. about this movie? Cape I mean, fear. This night, this remake of a 1962 movie by Martin Scorsese. I mean, that's not very nineties at all. I think one of the, this is kind of goes into what we grew out of section two but like i think there's a way that like robert de niro is such a compelling character in this movie and anti-heroes are so popular now i i feel like this movie today it would more explicitly be like he's the hero like not the hero but like the main like somehow we would be more aligned with him like this movie is very sympathetic to him and i think you see that he has been wronged but also like 
I feel like with a big movie star doing big violence, I think it would be all rejiggered in a way that like he would be a similar character, but he would be more like the main character. Mm. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I'm going to, may, may, may I respectfully disagree? Please do. Please do, Ricky. I respectfully disagree. The truth is I couldn't like, think of a fucking way that this movie is 90s I can't believe, at all. I, couldn't, I can't believe you couldn't think of what I'm going to say as to how this movie is 90s. It's so obvious how this movie is 90s. But first and foremost, De Niro is the most sympathetic you're going to get for a character this violent. Maybe they would take away the violence, but they would in no way make allow this person to be this sympathetic. I mean, that's what people would have trouble with watching the movie. He's not just sympathetic; he's charismatic. He's kind of sexy. Yeah. It's cr- like, and you, if you, you think about it enough, that he's right about almost everything, you know, except for all the rapes. Except for all the rapes. Yeah, exactly. Um, but what I was going to say is the most '90s thing about this movie. Yes, it's a remake of a movie from 1962, but this is a 90s thriller. Yeah. It is a, yeah. it is a well, I it is already a, was talking about Harrison Ford. Like what the fuck? How did I miss that? It is a well budgeted adult thriller. And the they, fact that it was like a huge phenomenon, you know? And what, and what, when people talk about 90s movies all the times, they talk about the thrillers. They talk about this, this period of time where the thriller was the big movie. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Like every movie was a thriller. Every movie star was in a million of these crazy thrillers, like Julia Roberts being in Sleeping with the Enemy. <laughs> you know, like, yes. These these movies that were R rated for adults and were you know scary scary thrillers where somebody like you know a crazy person is going after a family. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally true. That is totally true. You're totally right. And like Ricochet that I was talking about before, very similar. You know a crazy lunatic is going after your family and you have to protect them. And to protect them, you have to become an animal yourself. You know, a lot of similarities between this and and Ricochet, really. (laughs) Uh, Ricky, you know, it's been 30 years since this movie came out and there's been a lot changed, you know, not just in the movie business, but in society at large. Um, What do you think that we've grown out of? Well, I'm going to kind of go back to the first thing that you said. And I don't think that a movie would allow, at least with the way that movies are right now, I don't think a, a company would have the courage to allow a character to be this violent and at the same time alluring. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, this is kind of my answer too. Like the way that, the, that, that you see him do this brutal rape of Ileana Douglas and punching her and dislocating her shoulder and being disgusting. And then that the scene where he's seducing Juliette Lewis is after that scene. Yes. The, the closest thing that I can think of to that is the guest with Dan Stevens, but in that, he is in no way a sexual predator. He's almost sexless. Mm. Um, I, oh, I didn't. You know, actually, he, I didn't see that one. Oh, you'd really like it. It's great. He's like a. Um, he's a. He's a vet that that goes to a. Um, you know, a buddy in combat's family, who uh, who died in combat to like tell them. But then things aren't as they seem, and he kind of seems like he could be protecting or terrorizing the family. And then it turns out he's something else completely and is a psychotic. And uh, it's, it's great. It's different than this, but I mean, it's, it's the, one of the few things where it's like, he's a mass murdering psychopath, killing people in grotesque, violent ways, but he's cool and hot and you're into it in a way, you know, you, you want the leads to get away and live, but you also, like the guy, I, but it doesn't go as far as Cape Fear does. I mean, where Max Casey go, Max Katie goes in, in Cape Fear is much darker and uh, at times even like difficult to watch. I mean, it is one of those movies where I, I was watching it and I, I know I keep talking about the funny games or whatever, but it put me in mind of a thing that funny games deals with explicitly, which is like, you know, the director is God in the movie and he can make bad things happen to good people or even people that aren't good, but just seem like they shouldn't have this kind of brutal thing happen to them. And it's so rare that that happens. Do you know what I mean? Where the director is really like setting up in a situation where emotionally you naturally want things to go one way. And then like turning the screws on you in this like really excruciating, brutal way. And also where there are no heroes. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. Right. Like I think a movie would allow a villain to be this violent, but I don't think they would allow it to be this complicated. And and, and I, I hesitate to say ambiguous because he's not ambiguous. Like you know, he's evil. He is, he's evil. You yes. Know. He's evil. But there is some complicated, there is some complications there. Right. And the people who he is fighting are also not good, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, uh, for you, what have we grown out of? I mean, I think this is this is kind of my answer too. You know, this and especially like I was saying before, in the context of like a big budget, it's just so funny to put yourself back in this mindset where like a thriller was not just a big box office draw, but like a, such a part of the culture and like the Simpsons is making an episode about it. And it's like the thing everybody's talking about all the time, but it's this insane movie where Robert, there's a long scene where Robert De Niro is arranging people so he can rape them. And he's like, he's got the dad tied up on the ground to make him watch. And like, it's rough going dude. It's really rough. And it's things are like on a knife edge. You don't know what's going to happen. Like, it's just so crazy to think that this is what mainstream culture was in America. It was awesome. Such a better culture. And way better, a better culture. way better. Cuz it's a, for adults it's it acknowledges complexity of feeling and complexity of human beings. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um I think that's it, man. I, yeah, think, I think we that's just it, covered dude. I think we Cape did Fear. it, brother. Good talking to you. Good talking to you too, uh, brother. Happy 30th birthday, Cape Fear. And before we go, if you're in New York City or in the nearby area and you want to travel to New York City and watch Chris live, Chris and I live in person, talk no, just about me a movie. if you want to watch me live. Yeah. Ricky, you, know. you probably want to watch Chris. You don't want to you don't you don't want to watch me. Well, there's lots of videos on. of Ricky on the internet, but there's fewer videos of me, yeah. so yeah. yeah, if you like those videos of me on the internet and you want to see the real thing in person, <laughs> come to Nighthawk theaters in prospect park on december 13th where we're going to be screening the last boy scout and then chit-chatting about it afterwards chris have a good night you too brother good night